Good afternoon and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, Dr. Joshua Moravchik will be joining us to talk about the rise of socialism in American politics. Dr. Moravchik is a distinguished fellow at the World Affairs Institute. He is a former resident scholar at American Enterprise Institute and a former fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute. Additionally, he is a professor at IWP, where he teaches a course on ideas and values in American politics. Dr. Moravchik is the author of 11 books, including Heaven on Earth, The Rise and Fall of Socialism, The Imperative of American Leadership, and Exporting Democracy, Fulfilling America's Destiny, and also more than 400 articles in newspapers, magazines, and scholarly journals. Dr. Moravchik, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we are going to be discussing the rise of socialism in American politics. In 2016, we saw socialism gain popularity in mainstream politics with Bernie Sanders' campaign to be the Democratic presidential nominee. It continued even into the 2020 election cycle as Senator Sanders continued his bid for the Democratic nomination. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of the socialist movement in the United States and when did socialism begin influencing American politics? Well, there were uh, socialist parties of different kinds that uh, were started up in the last years of the 19th century and uh, one that came together as the largest one was called simply the Socialist Party. There was also Socialist Labor Party and later, other years later, Socialist Workers Party and Workers Party and Communist Party. But the, the principal one early was the Socialist Party, which actually in the first decades of the century was a more or less viable third party. By viable, I mean it elected a couple of members to Congress on its own ticket that is running against Democrats and Republicans. It elected mayors in, in some uh, cities of significance. Milwaukee was governed by a socialist party mayor for many years, uh, Schenectady, New York, Berkeley. And, and some other places. Uh, but the high point of the Socialist Party was uh, in uh, 1912, when its uh, uh, candidate for president, uh, Eugene V. Debs, gathered uh, 6% of the popular vote nationally. After that, it was all downhill. And could you explain the basic ideologies behind socialism? Well, the core idea is that uh, property should be shared and should be owned communally and that the uh, wealth that's created by the society should be divided uh, evenly among its members. My next question is how did socialism shape the 20th century? Well, in multiple ways, but the, the, uh, the, the most important way or the single most dramatic way was in the form of communism, which uh, wasn't uh, the only variation of socialism, but was 
the one that got the farthest uh, in terms of being able to uh, take over whole countries and impose a, a new system on them. And communism came about because early socialists imagined that this idea was so good that everybody would go for it and uh, it could come about uh, peacefully, almost organically as society evolved. And uh, that didn't happen. And so then there were some socialists who said, well, it's too bad that that hasn't happened by itself, but it's so important to achieve this result, to, to build this perfect society that we imagine, that we'll just have to do it at the barrel of a gun. And they created uh, violent revolutions and violent dictatorships in order to impose this perfect system on imperfect people. And uh, at the high point, considering how large the Soviet Union was and how large China was and still is, uh, they and uh, there, there were about altogether, I think by my count, about I think 18 countries that came under the rule of communist parties. And they that accounted for about a third of the population of the world. Uh, so it was huge and it was, uh, terribly destructive. There were many other ways that uh, socialism uh, uh, influenced the history of the 20th century, different variations, uh, but uh, the communist rule over about a third of the world was the single largest one. We're starting to hear the term democratic socialism. Is there really a difference between socialism and democratic socialism? And if so, could you explain? Yes, sure. This is uh, something that is particularly close to me because I was a democratic socialist. And uh, the point is that there have been many different vari variations of socialism. And there were socialists starting back in 1917 when Lenin seized power in Russia and began to establish a, an extremely controlling and brutal dictatorship. There were many other socialists who said, wait a second, this isn't our dream. This isn't the harmonious society that we imagined. Uh, this is not real socialism. And they rejected communism. And to emphasize their rejection of the dictatorial variations of uh, socialism, they started using the term democratic socialist. So it's not so much that democratic socialist is different from socialist, but it's just one uh, form of socialism that it, uh, uh, whose adherents took on that name in order to distinguish themselves from undemocratic socialists. Socialism has failed in every country it has been tried. However, the national polls continue to show a large majority of millennials have a favorable view of socialism. For example, around 2.1 million people under the age of 30 voted for Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders in the 2016 Democratic primaries and caucuses. Additionally, 
Polls are finding that not only do a large majority of millennials have a favorable opinion of socialism, a near majority would prefer to live under socialism rather than capitalism. In your opinion, why do you think this is the case? You know, how did we switch from fighting socialism during the Cold War to kind of aspiring after it? I think there are a few reasons. One is, uh, I think there's a lot of confusion, uncertainty about what the term means. I, I've seen more than one public opinion poll which shows that uh, when people are asked, do you have a favorable or unfavorable attitude toward blank? And the blank is capitalism, then, then it's, they're asked about socialism, and they tend to, uh, larger numbers say they're favorable to socialism, than to capitalism. But in the same poll, then the same people were asked, after, in addition to those two, asked free enterprise. And a much larger percentage liked free enterprise than liked socialism or communism. So uh, who knows what they're thinking when they answer in the same breath that they have a favorable opinion of socialism and of free enterprise. Uh, so I think. Part one of the answer is that uh, it's not clear what people think they mean when they say, yes, I, I, I'm for socialism. Second is, I think, particularly from listening to people like Bernie Sanders, uh, they may think that socialism means free stuff. <laughs> Cancel my uh, loan obligation and everything and all free, all education going forward comes free medical care well, that's going to be free too childcare that's going to be free this is great except it's it's terribly childish and foolish because of course in the end someone has to pay for it and what's really foolish about it is that the people who are going to have to pay for it are the young people. Uh, that is, uh, we, a great many of our social programs uh, go to benefit geezers like me, uh, but as the, as the uh, debt that the country has from spending more than we take in gets larger and larger, the young generation is gonna be, be facing how to deal with that debt 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the line. And the third reason I think is uh, because of uh, smartphones and uh, tablets and computers. I have the impression that, uh, and it's only an impression, that uh, in particular young people read fewer books and absorb more information uh, from uh, uh, tweets or uh, uh, Facebook postings or uh, Instagram or whatever. Short, I'm sure I'm already behind the times in terms of what are the popular formats of uh, of uh, social media. I don't even quite know what some of these things I just mentioned are, but but uh, but what I do know is that uh, all of these electronic means of communication seem to favor extremely brief communications. And I have the sense 
that this is what uh, people are reading now. And so this is all a way of saying, I fear that they may know less. If you, if you spend your reading time uh, with books, uh, you're likely to get a better sense of history than if you spend your reading time reading tweets. Just kind of a follow-up question um, to that one. Socialists love to cite Sweden and Denmark as ideal socialist models. In your opinion, is that a plausible comparison? Are Denmark and Sweden truly examples of socialist countries? Well, uh, it comes to be a semantic question of what you what you define as socialism. By that, by the same measure, you can say the United States is already a socialist country, and, and you can say that there isn't a country on earth that isn't a socialist if you mean that there's a substantial government sector. Uh, uh, every country in the world, even those that are and, and prize being friendly to private business, uh, has a large government sector that's universal. So, and it's also true that uh, not just Scandinavia, but Europe as a whole has a larger public sector than the US. In the US, the public sector, if you combine the federal with the state and local governments, well, it used to run about one third of the economy, but that that's already changed over the past 15 years or so. And, and now it's in the uh, higher 30s, percentage, uh, 38 percent, 30, I don't know, 37, 30, I mean, it, it, it you know, varies a little bit. The European countries are mostly in the high 40s. So they have a, a, a degree of larger public sector than we have. And I think that's attributable to a, a few factors. One is just a, a somewhat different tradition and culture where, where America has a, a, a history that really prizes individualism, uh, whereas the European countries all evolve from monarchies and some of them still are formally monarchies like England and, and, and uh, it's true in some of the Scandinavian countries too. And uh, so there's more of a tradition in those countries of strong government and less of a kind of American frontier, rugged individualism. That's one reason. The second is they're smaller. And particularly the Scandinavian countries are quite small. And they're uh, uh, some things, if you picture the, the national government uh, doing some things that we leave in the private sector, uh, some functions in a Scandinavian country, those countries are smaller than the large U.S. cities. Uh, so it might be equivalent of, of having municipal services in our country. I think that's another reason. But there's an important bit of history uh, here that, that should be understood, which is in Sweden and Norway, in France and England and, and several of the others, there was a time 
going back 40, 50 years, depending in, in, in the case of England, you would go back 70 years. Uh, but in, from the after World War II, over the next 30 years, let's say, in a variety of countries, including the Scandinavian countries, the socialist parties came to power and they not only expanded the welfare state, but they also tried to begin changing from, from nationalizing so that government was taking over industries away from private business. And in each of those countries, this worked very badly. And it, uh, the economies started going downhill. And in every one of them, including the Scandinavian countries, they sharply reversed course. So as today, there's still a large public sector, there's still a large welfare state uh, in uh, the Scandinavian countries as elsewhere. But if you look, for example, the World Bank does a, an annual uh, uh, survey or list that it publishes called the Ease of Doing Business Scale the ease of doing business skills, how friendly the environment is in each country in the world to private business. And Norway, Denmark, and Sweden are all in the top 12 or 13 countries in the world for ease of doing business. Last time I looked, which was a year ago, two of them were ahead of the United States easier to do capitalism in Norway and Denmark, and the U.S. ranked 12th and Sweden 13th. So Sweden was one notch behind. That's one thing. The second thing is that uh, if you listen to Bernie Sanders, he says, we should expand our public sector with all these free things, and only the rich will pay for it. No more taxes for normal people, but uh, we just uh, tax trades in the stock market or uh, some nonsense like that. That will pay for all of this. And it, it couldn't be more different from what they actually do in the Scandinavian countries, which is they have taxes that are high but are distributed much more widely than they are in the United States today. They, they have a national sales tax of about 25 percent. Sales taxes traditionally have been anathema to liberals or progressives because uh, they are non-progressive. The, 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 the poor have to pay 25 percent uh, as as well as the rich, uh, and so uh, you, you what you have in the Scandinavian countries is a political history in which they have a larger government, a larger public sector, uh, and uh, they do things through the government that we do in the private sector. But their large government is paid for by everybody, by the taxes of everybody. And that's a very different impression than uh, when you hear the Bernie Sanders version of Scandinavia.
Thank you. I, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that you once considered yourself a democratic socialist. So what did it really take for you to kind of change that perspective and kind of gain this new ideology? Well, I didn't just consider myself a democratic socialist. I devoted my life to it for, oh, oh, a decade or something. And, and for five years, I was the leader of a national socialist youth organization called the Young People's Socialist League. Uh, Bernie Sanders belonged to it briefly. Uh, and uh, in fact, I mean, he and I both joined it in the same year in, in 1962. But he actually left, it's an interesting thing, he left Young People's Socialist League because he really wasn't a democratic socialist and because he really liked, uh, he was for socialism, whether it was democratic or dictatorial. As long as it was socialism, it was fine with him. He really loved what was, you know, Castro and Cuba and other socialist dictators. And so <clears throat> calling himself a democratic socialist today is really ra rather a cover story. Uh, but for me, you didn't ask me to, to, to criticize Bernie Sanders again. You asked me about myself. So I, I was very passionate in my belief. And uh, I'm a, uh, you could say, a slow learner. I'm certainly a slow thinker. And it, it took me many years to gradually change my mind. The thing that was my starting point is I was always uh, repelled by communism. It was perfectly, unlike Bernie Sanders, it was perfectly obvious to me that to have a uh, dictator who concentrates all power in his own hands and imprisons or murders anyone who uh, disagrees with him, that that is not a humane system, to put it mildly. And so uh, I hated communism, and but I believe that you know communism was just a uh, an imposture, that uh, that there was that I could envision a harmonious, kind, humane, democratic socialism. We just had never experienced it anywhere, and that was very different from communism. But over a period of time. I, I was troubled, and increasingly so, by the question of if socialism is such a great idea, how come it only comes into reality in horrible forms? And the, the, the kindly free uh, democratic socialism that was in my head never comes into existence. And that forced me to wrestle with the question of whether there's something deeper wrong with the idea of socialism. I think it's super interesting to hear kind of how you viewed socialism and what it really took for you to kind of adopt a new mindset and a new ideology. Now, we have seen how socialism has completely destroyed economies and kind of has this total disregard for basic freedoms. I mean, we see that in Venezuela and Cuba and China and, and even in the former Soviet Union. But how can we as citizens fight the rise of socialism in the United States? And what are the biggest weapons that we have at our disposal? Encourage everyone to read my book, uh, Heaven on Earth. Uh, and uh, in general, I think, encourage uh, particularly younger people to 
read books. This is a, this is a, a, a bit of history that's actually not at all ambiguous. The idea has been around for 200 years. The, the, the actual, the term socialism was actually coined in the 1820s, uh, but, but no one's quite sure whether it was first in English or in French. There were, there were these groups who were thinking this idea in both countries in the 1820s, the core idea of why, why, why have private property, why not share all property and, 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 and make it everyone economically equal. That, 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 as I said at the beginning of our interview, was the core idea of socialism. And that was the idea that these groups started playing with in, in when, they, when socialism, the term was coined. So just about 200 years, people in, in every continent, in, in scores of countries, have tried to bring this about to create socialism. And they have, in fact, created it in many different varieties. And at best, it just flopped. At worst, it ended up being a, a breathtaking catastrophe, taking millions of lives. And, you know, okay, so it happened once. Okay, so it happened twice. Okay, so it happened 10 times. Okay, so it's happened 100 times. Okay, so there aren't any counterexamples on the other side. At some point, you have to say, <laughs> the jury is no longer out about this idea. And all I can say is that uh, if, if people make any effort to, to learn about this, uh, they, will, they may not interpret the reasons in exactly the same way that I do, uh, actually in my own book, in the last part of the last chapter, I try to say why did this, why? Why was this idea such a disaster? But I say it in a voice of saying, I can't know for sure, here's what I think. I know exactly for sure what did happen, how horribly this idea failed. Different people can have different ideas about why it was such a horrible failure. But, but what's undeniable is that it, it was, and it's been tried enough to know that. And so the, the, only, the only antidote that I know of is education. Just kind of a follow-up question to that. In your book, Heaven on Earth, you discuss the history of socialism. And it's, it's a really good book. So for those of you who need something to read right now, I would highly recommend it. It's available on Amazon. Uh, but for those of us who want to learn more about this topic and effectively engage with those of differing opinions, what are some good resources to draw from? And could you give a little bit more background information on your book? My, my book is a history of socialism. Uh, but... Uh, just trying to, it's a long history and, and it's a wide history and I don't try to cover the entirety of it. Rather, I try to take a string of uh, examples and I actually focus it on people rather than on systems or events. I, I take a string of the most influential people of, different, of each different variety of socialism 
and how they brought it about in one country or another and 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 then how it how it failed so i i try to cover all the different variations of socialism but i don't cover all the different countries or all the different uh or, or all the different events and uh and people could uh learn more by uh studying any or learning more about any any part of this uh, story uh, certainly today there's not much sympathy for what was soviet communism except among the advisors to jeremy corbyn in britain who, who are a bunch of <laughs> unreconstructed stalin lovers uh, i until i stumbled across them I, I i didn't think there were any such people on earth outside of you know some octogenarian uh former soviet citizens uh but but um uh and and there aren't very many people who are in love with the uh, maoist communism but but a lot more could be learned about and there are histories that, that tell it about the uh, attempts to create socialism democratically in England, France, Scandinavia, and how uh, those parties themselves backed away from it. Uh, that is, uh, uh, when we still have all over Europe very powerful parties that either call themselves social democratic or socialist or labor party, and uh, that they all were once true believers in socialism. The parties are still there, just like. The Democratic and Republican parties in our country today stand for you know, often the opposite of what they once stood for. Uh, uh, you know, in the in the nineteenth century, the Republican Party was the progressive party, and the Democratic Party was the uh, you know, arch conservative party, and, and then they 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 traded places. And, and so parties keep their same name and change their philosophies, and that happened in Europe too. But the, I think the most interesting thing that if people really want to learn the, you know, the maybe the, or explore the, the question of why socialism doesn't work, or at least one of the most interesting things to study is the, so-called kibbutzim in Israel. Uh, these are, there are a few hundred of them and they are communities of mostly a few hundred, maybe up to a thousand people. And they were, most Israelis did not live in them, but they were uh, really a big part of Israel uh, during the years that that country was Try before it was founded, and then in its first decades after it was founded, uh, and when when Israel was trying to get on its feet and and uh, establish itself in, in security as a country in a in a region that was not very hospitable, and uh, in the early decades, these kibbutzim produced the most of Israel's military and political leaders. They were 
they, they were in a sense the symbol of the country and they were pure socialist communities they were living breathing democratic socialism they raised their children collectively from birth in 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 they lived in what's called children's houses I mean, they, they visited their parents once a day even though their parents came and visited them uh, th there wasn't a uh, it wasn't like in plato's republic where no one knew who was their ch child who was their parent but uh uh but they the children didn't live with their parents they lived in the children's house people in the early days didn't even own their own clothes who would uh, once a week, you take your dirty laundry, uh, drop it off at the communal laundry, and they would hand you back a stack of uh, clean clothes to wear for the coming week. And, uh, and that was also democratic socialism in that all decisions were voted on. They, were, they had constant <laughs> meetings of the whole community to, to make decisions and all the leaders were elected and rotated. Everyone had turns in different positions. It was, it was really pure socialism. And that was the only socialism that I know of that actually worked. But here's the interesting thing about it. Once Israel was on its feet, the people who lived this uh, pure socialist existence voted to end socialism and to transform their own communities into uh, private ownership communities. And it, it was that um, for those decades when they were trying uh, to build a new country and to protect it against uh, surrounding uh, uh, peoples who didn't want them there, uh, they these communities were essential to the enterprise, and the people who lived there felt they were doing something wonderful with their lives. They were recreating after 2,000 years a Jewish country. Uh, but it turned out that they never liked living on the socialist way. And, and I, I didn't know that, but I went and interviewed a lot of the uh, veterans of the kibbutzim when I wrote my book. And, and I asked the question, so when did this way of life start to feel uncomfortable to you? And I was surprised by the answer, which was the, the usual answer was, it was always uncomfortable, but we did it because we thought we were doing something great, something bigger than ourselves. But once the country was firmly on its feet, no one wanted to keep living this way. So the, the irony of the story of socialism is that you know, over a huge period of time and at the cost of literally 100 million lives of people killed or something like that, uh, the, this uh, socialism was like the elusive holy grail. No one could ever do it. 
And then here in this one place in the world, people actually did it and it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was like a, a, you know, a shaggy dog joke or something. Uh, once you get there, there's nothing there. Well, Dr. Moravchik, thank you so much for talking with us today about the rise of socialism in American politics and just giving us a better understanding of what we can do to combat the establishment of socialism in the United States. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for your interest. I enjoyed doing it. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to IWP's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. Until next time, stay tuned and stay informed.